This episode is brought to you by California Tea House. California Tea House is a family-owned tea store where you can find some of the world's best loose-leaf tea and organic herbal tea blends. Like a fine wine, there is no comparison between fine loose-leaf and common broken-leaf tea bags. So, yeah, no, check them out. Check them out. They have quite a bit of pretty awesome tea collections. I'm a huge fan of their white teas. Uh, They have a tea club that you can join, but, you know, they've got green tea, black tea, white tea, oolong, that uh, robios and herbal tea. They've also got teaware. So check out California Tea House in the show notes. Hey everyone, it's me, DB. New sponsor on the show, Glary. Glary offers a great price and better quality goods and services for music lovers. Are you looking for good prices, free shipping, 100% quality guarantee? Glary's got you covered. Guitars, bass guitars, mandolins, They've got saxophones, trumpets, drums. They've got guitar cases, amplifiers, all the stuff that you need without having to break the bank. Inexpensive doesn't have to mean cheap. Check out the show notes to find more about Glary. 20-watt amplifiers for under $50. Hard cases for your electric guitar for under $80. Guitars themselves for under $90. Come on, folks, check out the show notes. Get a glary. Hey everyone. It's me, DB. Just reminding you. We have t-shirts in the shop. Just go to pgttcm.com. Check out all of our cool t-shirts and stickers. Heck, we even got some shelf curtains in there. Keep clean. Look cool. Have cool stickers to put on stuff. Join us on Patreon. Get a free sticker. By Alan H. Godby. Chapter 15. The Flood of 1890. And rearing Linda's backward pressed, shook all her trembling banks amain, then madly at the Igra's breast flung all her weltering walls again. Then banks came down with ruin and rout, then beaten foam flew round about, and all the mighty floods were out. So far, so fast, the agri drave, the heart had hardly time to beat, before a shallow, seething wave sobbed in the grasses at our feet. The feet had hardly time to flee, before it broke against the knee, and all the world was in the sea. The Great Flood of 1874 is remembered as the most destructive of human life in the history of the Mississippi Valley. It came almost without warning. The rolling river rose rapidly, and the levees broke in many places before the masses suspected danger. Hundreds of people were drowned, and as for the loss of property, no attempt was made to estimate the amount. Certainly it amounted to many millions. Perhaps only the Chicago fire could compare with it in this respect. Another great year of high water was 1882, but the damage done was smaller, as the levees had been heightened and strengthened. But the floods of this year, in area submerged, in long duration, in height of water, and in the pertinacity with which they were contested, eclipsed all records. 
there is no measuring the extent of the calamity there is nothing in the recorded history of the mississippi valley to compare with it in some places the gauges were completely overflowed levees that had withstood former waters and had been strengthened since snapped like whipcords under the tremendous strain early in the present year the signal service warned the people of the lower mississippi that very high water might be expected as the snows of the upper ohio region had been very heavy while the unusually early spring would bring the flood water into the lower river at the time of heavy spring rains there the levees were carefully examined and every precaution against high water taken but the people though expecting high water had not reckoned upon such a flood as came the river rose above the great flood of eighteen seventy four passing all previous records by two feet and reaching a foot higher than the levees had been built to sustain on june first cairo reported eighteen feet and rising while the river was falling from louisville up the ohio was falling at st louis and stationary on the lower mississippi from the first day of the year the river rose at cairo and in ten days the river had risen thirteen feet from cincinnati down the ohio increased in volume for four days and on january sixteenth at cairo it passed the danger line forty feet by three tenths the rise in sixteen days had been one and three-eighths feet a day at that time the river was rising slowly from evansville down and falling above a few days later came another rise in the ohio aided by the tennessee and cumberland and by the first of february the water at cairo was almost a flood the volumes of water continued till the lower mississippi was bank full by the latter end of february the danger point had been reached at memphis shreveport vicksburg and new orleans cairo was already in trouble on march twelfth cairo reached its maximum forty eight point nine the signal service office had given out a prediction of fifty one feet but the failure of the upper mississippi to rise prevented that stage being reached the river at st louis had then but five feet of water on march fourteenth chief signal officer a w greeley sent out a warning from washington to the people living on the lower mississippi he told them that the rain they had had for four days had been drained into the tributaries of the great river and would swell it considerably the greatest flood ever known might be expected within a few days all stock and valuable movable property should be taken to the hills new orleans had then higher water than ever before the river was then rising in the lower missouri and st louis was reporting rapid increase in the stage of water cairo had fallen but the upper ohio and lower tributaries brought back the upper line of the flood to near the maximum stage the lower mississippi tributaries began to swell the arkansas and red rivers overflowed their banks low levees grew weak and succumbed low-lying towns and plantations were flooded then came the nights and days of terrible struggle along lines of levee that protected vast tracts of land men were pressed into service whether they liked the work or no and the shotgun patrol was established for the protection of the safer levees from being cut the upper mississippi swelled rapidly and while not reaching a dangerous stage itself it added enormously to the peril below then came floods in arkansas tennessee mississippi and louisiana the first serious trouble from the mississippi in arkansas occurred in phillips county above the mouth of the white river where some five hundred people were driven from their homes to the highest points by the backwater and the cattle gaunt wild-eyed starving were forced to subsist on cane twigs of cottonwood and other trees felled for them 
Three times the backwater and heavy local rains flooded this region, while the retiring flood left a deposit of mud from one to five feet in depth, precluding the possibility of turning the hungry cattle upon the land for two or three weeks, and rendering it impossible to raise a crop of corn or more than half a crop of cotton. At Cairo, the rivers were 100 miles in width, covering 50 miles of Missouri lowlands and extending to the hills in Kentucky, while Cairo itself was partially flooded. The railroads in that section were forced to stop, and the people fled to the hills for their lives. Steady rains fell in Arkansas, Ohio, and lower Missouri River valleys, and by the time these began to subside, the floods in the streams below had passed previous records. The greatest danger and trouble was in the valley from Arkansas City southward. Heavy rains produced a break in the levee at that place. March 28th, the levees broke at two points on the eastern shore between Arkansas City and Memphis, Tennessee, submerging many thousands of acres of land and sweeping southeastward to the Yazoo River. Greenville, Mississippi, a city of 10,000, is partially protected by a high ridge through the city, but there was no means of holding back the enemy in the rear. The town is situated at the extremity of a sharp eastward curve, and a violent storm at length aided the rapid current in cutting away the front defense, and the town was forced to yield. Strenuous efforts close to the breaks above completely failed, and all that could be done was to secure the ends of the crevices to prevent their widening. Cattle were herded for a time on the levees and embankments, but these gradually yielded and the animals were drowned in droves. Defenses yielded were least expected. By April 3rd, there was two feet of water in the streets of Greenville. There was nothing left but to make the best of the situation. People took to the upper floors, and appeals for state, national, and individual aid were sent out. The telephone lines leading out of the city were destroyed, and communication with the outer world was greatly hindered. Occasional reports of destitution and suffering came from Greenville, but these were contradicted by meetings of leading citizens who said, There is no destitution here that home people cannot relieve. If the Negroes want to wait for government rations and refuse from a dollar fifty to two fifty per day to work on levees, their starving arouses no sympathy. While all these sensational reports of destruction are traveling about, the steamboats are running into Memphis and Vicksburg, begging for levee hands, and the native Negro is sitting on the levee fishing. The water swept rapidly southward, submerging almost the entire region between Yazoo and Mississippi. Meanwhile, the trouble in Louisiana was just beginning. The banks began caving near the levee in Madison Parish Front, compelling the erection of a new levee in the rear of the old one. But the fight went on stubbornly for three weeks, both along the river front and along the bayous in the interior. Echafalaya River was 45 feet above low water. The contest for the levees there was as bitter as along the main stream. Occasional breaks occurred, but these were closed or kept from spreading by the 20,000 men who labored day and night along the stream between Bayou Serra and New Orleans. Ere long it appeared that the greatest danger was along the Concordia and Point Coop parish fronts. A parish in Louisiana coincides with what is known as a county elsewhere. Considerable appropriations were made, and the head of the 3rd District Levy System, Captain D.C. Kingman, conducted the fight on the Point Coupe front in person. The battle ended here in disastrous defeat. The men held their ground manfully till April 20th, no serious breaks having then occurred. 
All that day the men were compelled to work in a drenching rainstorm that was beating fiercely against the already overburdened and sodden levees of the west bank of the river. The danger at the great Morganza bend grew excessive. It was hoped that during the night the storm would cease, or at least that the wind might shift to some other quarter. But when the morning broke, there were the same leaden skies overhead, with darker masses still scurrying to the westward before a fierce easterly gale that was as fresh and strong as ever, and which hurled storms of white-capped waves upon the rain-soaked earthworks. Bags of earth and sand were piled up along the levee, to prevent the waves from washing over. Wilder and more furious raged the storm. Higher and higher beat the waves as the day passed. In the teeth of drenching surf and blinding rain, the battle with rising flood went bravely on. Sacks were piled upon sacks, and revertments of plank and jute bagging were carried up till the superstructure upon the crown of the levee looked like a fair-sized levee itself. Not only the men, but even the women and children fought bravely for their homes in the teeth of that wild, furious storm. As Monday night closed in, the situation was more gloomy than ever. The heavy leaden sky was deeply shadowed by low-hanging clouds of dull, slaty black, driven before the fierce gale that was sweeping up the reach, thrashing it into long ribs of foam that every now and then broke clear over the levees along the New Texas system and beat savagely against the great Morganza just below them. A nightfall dark and wild with wind and storm was followed by a night black and tempestuous, and still the desperate fight went on. Here and there ruddy, flaring torches struggled with the murky gloom, but within their dim halos could be seen the big breakers hungrily licking the tops of the sodden barriers that throbbed and quivered beneath every cruel blow. Planters' wives and daughters stood ankle-deep in mud, filling sacks and helping to lift them upon the shoulders of the men who were carrying them to the levee. Two bold creoles stood at one weak place, though they felt the levee dissolving beneath their feet. They sank into their knees in the mud and water, but still they stood stubbornly on the sinking dike, piling sacks in the breach, though again and again the flood seemed to be in the very act of overpowering and sweeping them away in the very center of a crevasse. It was a bloodless battle, but many a man has won fame on a gory battlefield who never turned a more steadfast, unflinching gaze into the very jaws of death than did those brave defenders of their homes during that terrible night. Suddenly there was a wild outcry and a hurried mustering of forces at the old Morganza levee. But men and materials were no longer of any use. The dull yellow flood poured through the gap like a mighty cataract. Four hundred feet of the embankment were gone in a few moments. At once there was a suave quipu. The volunteer forces of the neighborhood hurried away to save what they could. As the Morganza levee was backed by a wide, uninhabited swamp, there was little danger of any lives being lost by the sudden breach, though the people had clung to their homes to the last. Meanwhile, numerous other breaks were occasioned by the storm. The first occurred at Bayou Serra, and others followed so rapidly that within twenty-four hours fifteen huge crevasses were pouring their torrents upon the land. Two other breaks occurred in the Morganza, and so vast was the volume of water drawn out by the three that the river at Bayou Serra, a few miles below, fell a foot in twenty-four hours, while the decline above was but an inch or two. Despite the gloomy outlook, the men toiled wearily on, and finally succeeded in closing most of the breaks, but the great Morganza crevasses defied every effort. 
Then came breaks in the Achatfalaya, and the turbid waters united and swept southward 100 miles to the sea. Some towns were abandoned to the snakes and frogs. In others, people put false floors in their dwellings and prepared for a siege. Government steamers plied up and down the country, picking up the refugees and all accessible livestock. The effort to keep back the water was at an end, and all that could be done of any especial use was in the way of salvage. The only remaining question was that of providing for the destitute. Appropriations from the state treasury were made, and corporations and private individuals contributed liberally. On April 24, two great breaks occurred in Concordia Parish, north of Point Coupe, thus much increasing the submerged area. From the items given, and the fact of breaks in East Baton Rouge, and the Nita Crevasse, and twenty or more below New Orleans, the reader may see that a large portion of eastern Louisiana lay more or less under water. By the end of April, there was no fear of further damage, simply because there was little harm left to do. The continual east wind added to the distress on the lower river by sweeping Lake Pontchartrain and the Gulf water across the land up to the levees on the river. The one peculiar feature of the recent flood is that but few lives were lost, perhaps not a dozen, all told. The warning of the signal service put people on their guard, and there was no occasion for surprise. The damage to property cannot be estimated. 3,000 square miles of land were more or less flooded in Louisiana alone, and while much of this was useless swamp land, the larger part comprised some of the most valuable sugar plantations in the state. 50,000 people were directly affected by the flood in this region. All the railroads in this district suffered severely from washouts and loss of time and custom. Any estimate of the damage done to planters should include not only real estate and personal property, but also the amount of loss from inability to raise the customary crops. This single item would be very large, but when we consider the terrible havoc committed in other lands and attended by fearful loss of life, we may be devoutly thankful that things were no worse with us. The levee system is attended by peculiar perils. There must be constant watching and repairing. At seasons of danger, patrols are needed, even when the levees are sound, for human nature is full of rank selfishness, and people who find their property endangered are apt to cut the levee upon the opposite side above them to relieve themselves by flooding others. Hungry wolves will eat a wounded companion, but man is almost the only animal that seeks opportunity for wounding his fellow that he may have a pretext for devouring him. The crawfish is another persistent enemy of the planter, undermining levees with his numerous tunnels and even penetrating the low-lying fields at a distance from the river, not infrequently damaging the roots of growing crops. The ground becomes like a sponge, and water oozes from the levees in countless places. There are other objections to the levee system, and while the Mississippi River Commission and a majority of engineers endorse it, there are not a few equally capable men who denounce it as false in theory and mischievous in practice. The problem remains a puzzling one. If the floods are unrestrained, a large portion of the river bottom becomes uninhabitable a considerable portion of each year. As to controlling them, a man of much experience said at the time of the flood in 1882, I have lived on the river for 30 years and I have studied it, for it was my business to do so. I have been steamboating all that time. I am now certain that I don't know anything about it or what ought to be done to it. Another said, 
when god put the river into this valley he told it to go wherever it pleases and it always has done so and always will yet the problem cannot be considered hopeless though mere experiments are dangerous there is little doubt that the levees would have withstood the unprecedented high water of the present year had it not been aided by the severe and protracted easterly storm but the levees must remain a constant expense more than ninety million dollars have already been spent upon them and the question is an even more vital one than ever the chief opponents of the levee system advocate the increase of outlets a glance at a large-scale map of louisiana will show the reader how very narrow the mouths of the river are in comparison with its breadth above and when it is remembered that these passages required deepening ere large vessels could reach new orleans it is clear that the outlet men have good reason for asserting that the proper thing to do is to open as many outlets to the sea as possible yet the majority of engineers declare this to be unscientific and radically wrong the levee men propose to narrow the channel and rely upon the scour of the water to keep the river bottom free enough to afford a clear passage to the sea the scour is aided as far as possible in clearing away obstructions where it is desired to maintain a channel and by placing other obstructions in places where natural shallows have been formed this is the work carried on by the commission and is one in theory with that executed by captain eads in the south pass of the delta he claimed that if the water flowing through the pass should be confined within comparatively narrow banks it would scour out the bottom and so deepen its own bed the primary result was exactly opposite to this the water refused to do the work expected of it and following the law of nature sought the line of least resistance finding the south pass obstructed or rather narrowed much of it turned aside and poured through the southwest pass and the pas and instead of scouring out the south pass scoured the other two to the depth of two feet below where their beds had formerly been as soon as this was discovered the two passes were partially dammed up and the water thus forced through the south pass it is evident at a glance that the amount of scour will only be as much as will permit ready exit of the water at ordinary stages the moment that point is reached the scour ceases and does not again act unless the river be still further narrowed hence this plan while increasing facility of navigation only robs peter to pay paul so far as protection is concerned for what is gained in depth and speed is necessarily lost in breadth the scour system has even failed to hold its own and has had to be reinforced by dredging machines this last fact tends to confirm the arguments of the outlet advocates they urge that the immense amount of silt carried by the river is destructive to the entire scheme during flood time this silt is nearly equally distributed throughout the water when an overflow occurs the immense quantity is shown by the vast alluvial deposits left in the submerged region according to the believers in the anti-levy theory if overflows are prevented the earth held in suspension instead of being deposited where it will enrich the land will gradually sink to the bottom of the river the result will be that the river bed will be steadily raised until the surface of the water at ordinary stages will be as high as the present flood marks levees will have to be built higher and higher the river will be raised far above the adjacent country and should a break occur at any point the consequence will be disastrous in the extreme an example of the effect of confining a silt-bearing alluvial river to its bed the huang ho in china is cited 
by constantly diking the bottom of the stream has been raised above large tracts of the adjacent country and some of the most terrible catastrophes in the history of floods have resulted from a break in the dikes during floods the natural result of the continual raising of the bottom is that where any serious breach occurs it is simply impossible to repair it so the great river has changed its channel entirely several times in the past two thousand years in eighteen fifty two it burst through its banks three hundred and fifty miles from the sea and cut a new channel through the northern part of the province of shantung to the gulf of pichili where it emptied nearly two hundred and seventy five miles north of its former mouth in the yellow sea the sharp angle at which it turned off is noticeable on the maps this region being almost unknown to foreigners at that time no one can say how many thousands or millions of lives were destroyed by china's sorrow but the great disaster of this sort occurred in eighteen eighty seven when the heavy fall rains of the northwest provinces swelled the streams and the yellow river finally broke its banks at a sharp bend in the honan province where the town of chengchow is situated frantic efforts were made to close the gap but in vain it rapidly grew to a width of one thousand two hundred yards some distance away the yellow torrent turned into the valley of a small stream known as the lucia down which it rushed in an easterly direction overwhelming everything in its path twenty miles from the chengchow it encountered chengmao a walled city of the third rank its thousands of inhabitants were attending to their usual pursuits there was no telegraph to warn them and the first intimation of disaster came with a muddy torrent that rolled down upon them within a short time only the tops of the high walls marked where the flourishing city had been three hundred villages in the district disappeared utterly and the lands about three hundred other villages were inundated the flood turned south from chungmao still keeping to the course of the lucia and stretched out in width for thirty miles this vast body of water was from ten to twenty feet deep several miles south of kaifeng the flood struck a large river which there joins the lucia the result was that the flood rose to a still greater height and pouring into a low-lying and very fertile plain which was densely populated submerged upward of one thousand five hundred villages not far beyond this locality the flood passed into the province of anhui where it spread very widely the actual loss of life could not be computed accurately but the lowest intelligent estimate placed it at one million five hundred thousand and one authority placed it at seven million the inundated provinces were under water four months two million survivors were left destitute the mind quails at the appalling magnitude of such a catastrophe such is the warning given by the yellow river it is urged that if the mississippi is heavily levied the same results will follow the po is another instance the bed of the stream has been raised by dikes until it is higher in many places than the tops of the houses and such disasters as have befallen the dwellers near the yellow river of china have only been avoided because of the fact that the po is a comparatively diminutive stream it is said that the same state of affairs exists on a smaller scale still on the tiber but the opponents of the outlet theory ascribe the china floods to ignorant engineering a charge that cannot be easily made to stick when it is remembered that the chinese have some of the most remarkable specimens of engineering skill in existence 
In support of the outlet theory, a number of experienced river captains and pilots assert that the bed of the river has been slowly rising during the past 30 years, that levees are needed at points where none were years ago, while at the same time there is less water in the channel at those points than formerly. At the time of this writing, Captain Condon is urging that an outlet be made through Lake Bourgogne from a point 10 miles below New Orleans. His company is to assume all costs, only asking that if successful they shall be paid $500,000 for every foot of reduction of the high water level. He asserts that one-fourth of the floodwaters can be readily drained off by this means. This Lake Burgoyne idea, commendable as it appears, has been agitated, more or less, for 40 years without being tried. A noted government engineer, Charles Ellett, urged it at the time of the flood of 1853 without avail. Whatever be the results of present deliberations, we must hope that no effort will be spared to thoroughly test the merits of any system agreed upon, but the long deliberations and the slow movements of the governmental committees are vexatious to those most vitally concerned. A prominent Louisianan says, if the government and the people had raised $500,000, placed a larger force, and held that Morganza levy, it would have cost less than the mere relief expenditures, to say nothing of the millions of total loss of the flood. And Harper's Weekly affirms that, in one respect, the casual observer is moved to sarcastic reflections. When a flood does come, like the present one, or even one of much less dimensions, the work of the commission is of necessity suspended, and at first sight it seems extremely ridiculous to see engineers waiting for the water to subside before they can place confines many feet below the present surface, which confines are intended, in part at least, for the purpose of preventing similar overflows in the future. Holland, the land of windmills, is another region which has a continual struggle with this levy question. The native name of the country, Nederlands, or Netherlands, refers to the character of the region, which lies as an average, about on sea level, while the great portion is even somewhat lower. The thrifty people who settled here erected dikes to keep back the sea, and built windmills to pump out the water, thus reclaiming a fertile tract from the bottom of the sea. But the great dikes need incessant watching and repairing, and the expenditures upon them up to the present time have been greater than would have been required to build them outright of solid copper. As the safety of the dikes involves all that pertains to temporal life and welfare, the people have learned not to trust to a single line of defenses. Second and third lines are erected in the rear of the first, and many large towns are completely girded with defenses of their own. Since the population of this region is nearly 500 to the square mile, while our own land does not average over 18 to the same area, it is at once clear that the breaking of the dikes is a far more serious and terrible matter than the rupture of our levees. Some fearful disasters in Holland are recorded. In 1421, the dikes gave way at Dort, and more than 100,000 people perished. In 1530, there was a general failure of the dikes, and the people, not dreaming of danger, were suddenly overwhelmed. 400,000 perished, and the loss of property was proportionate. Two great floods have occurred within this century, doing terrible damage. The Dutch, though peaceful and phlegmatic, are a liberty-loving people, and have often shown themselves ready to sacrifice everything for their freedom. They have found more than once its safety in the loss of all else. One of the most thrilling and memorable incidents of this sort occurred in 1574. 
under the leadership of William the Silent, one of the noblest of men. The Dutch were struggling to throw off the yoke of Spain. Leyden was besieged. The town was well fortified. The Spaniards endeavored to starve the city into surrender. They swarmed about the outworks and taunted the famished people as beggars. The contest grew daily more hopeless for the besieged. Hundreds were dead of starvation, but the survivors hurled defiance at the Spaniards. They were digging up every green thing, devouring roots of grass, old leather, offal, anything that could in the least aid to sustain life. But so long as a dog barked in the city, the Spaniards might know they held out. A few faint-hearted ones pleaded with the burgomaster to yield. But the brave Van der Werf, gaunt, pale, wearied with care and watching, told them they could only surrender when they had eaten him, so long as he lived the city should not yield. It was a terrible time. Scores crept into out-of-the-way places to die, that their misery might not be seen by their friends. The Dutch without wished to help their friends within, but the lines of the enemy were too strong. As the last resort, the silent man ordered the dikes cut. It was done. The country folk abandoned their homes. A fleet of two hundred vessels sailed in over the land fifteen miles. They reached the Lenscheiding, a great dike five miles from the city. Three-quarters of a mile nearer the town was a second dike, the Greenway. Within it was the Kirkway. The rising water frightened the Spaniards, but at ten inches it stopped. The Spaniards renewed their taunts. Again it rose two feet. The vessels drew nearer. Then they lay aground in sight of the famished citizens. Then arose a strong southwest wind, and after days of weary waiting, the fleet was close to the last line of fortifications. It was the first of October. In the morning, the beggars of the sea would make a desperate attack upon the Spanish hordes. In the night there came a terrible crash. The sea had undermined the wall. The citizens were filled with panic, fearing an immediate eruption of the enemy. They stood under arms through the weary night. The morning came. Not a Spaniard was in sight. Fearing a sortie of the hunger-maddened people, they had fled in the darkness. The city was saved by the drowning of the land. A story is told of Frederick the Great, illustrative of the same indomitable spirit. After establishing the supremacy of Prussia, he was suspected of designs upon the independence of the Netherlands. The Dutch envoy at his court, newly appointed, Frederick endeavored to overawe by a display of his power. A great military review was held, and Frederick, who took a peculiar delight in tall men, caused troop after troop of his gigantic grenadiers to file before the weazened little Dutchman, and asked his opinion. Of each one, the envoy said, very good, but not tall enough. Frederick, much nettled at this oft-replied criticism, asked the ambassador what he meant by it. I mean, he retorted, that we can flood our country twelve feet deep. Frederick left the Dutch in peace. Though the most terrible calamities of any kind, whether from flood, famine, or earthquake, are to be found in the history of China, yet other nations have shared in disastrous floods. We mention a few. A notable flood occurred on the coast of Lincolnshire, England, A.D. 245. It seems to have been a high tide aided by the wind. 3,000 people and many cattle were drowned by a flood in Cheshire, A.D. 353. 400 families were drowned in Glasgow, A.D. 758, by an overflow of the Clyde. 
A tidal wave destroyed several English seaports in A.D. 1014. The Severn leaped its banks in 1483, submerging the adjacent lowlands and drowning hundreds. 50,000 people perished in Catalonia, Spain, during a flood in 1617. In Yorkshire, England, occurred a remarkable outburst of subterranean waters in 1686. In September 1687, mountain torrents inundated Navarre, and 2,000 persons were drowned. Twice, in 1787 and in 1802, the Irish Liffey overran its banks and caused great damage. A reservoir in Lurca, a city of Spain, burst in 1802 in much the same way as did the dam at Johnston, and, as a result, 1,000 persons perished. Twenty-four villages near Presburg, and nearly all their inhabitants were swept away in April 1811 by an overflow of the Danube. Two years later, large provinces of Austria and Poland were flooded, and many lives were lost. In the same year, a force of 2,000 Turkish soldiers, who were stationed on a small island near Widen, were surprised by a sudden overflow of the Danube, and all were drowned. There were two more floods in this year, one in Silesia, where 6,000 persons perished, and the French army met such losses and privations that its ruin was accelerated, and another in Poland, where 4,000 persons were supposed to have been drowned. In 1816, the melting of the snow on the mountains surrounding Strabane, Ireland, caused destructive floods, and the overflow of the Vistula in Germany laid many villages under water. Floods that occasioned great suffering occurred in 1829, when severe rains caused the Spey and Findhorn to rise 50 feet above their ordinary level. The following year, the Danube again overflowed its banks and inundated the houses of 50,000 inhabitants of Vienna. The Seona overflowed in 1840 and poured its turbulent waters into the Rhine, flooding 100 square miles of land and drowning thousands. Another great flood in France occurred in 1856. In 1875, still another drowned a thousand people near Toulouse, while India, the same year, lost many through floods. But no such destruction of life ever visited our own land till within a year past, and the event is more to be deplored in that it was caused by unexcusable negligence. That flood we must next consider. End of chapter 15. This episode is brought to you by Donner. Check out the show notes to find a good deal at Donner. Like the sound of this? This is the Donner Island Delay, and the really cool Donner LP that I've shown off on, like, Instagram. Check it out. I've got some really good summer deals, and check out their snap deals as well. Use the link in the show notes to help support the show. Get yourself some cool musical instruments, maybe some patch chords. Cool.
Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodgson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the HP Lovecraft Film Festival. Classic Monsters, Modern Talk, and the Head of Rondo Hatton. Only on Monster Kid Radio. You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Thank you once again for listening to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. You can help show your support by going to the show notes and following any of the links that'll tell you how to support the show and how to support our guests. And thank you to all of our guests who you can find in the show notes. Rate, review, subscribe. And remember, patrons get priority access to asking us questions, suggesting topics, even, I don't know... Uh, submitting stuff. Actually, you don't have to be a patron to submit anything. That's how Dave got on the show, and that's how you can get on the show, too. It's the People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends. Thank you for listening. Back to the show. Great Disasters and Horrors in the World's History by Alan H. Godby Chapter 16 The Johnstown Flood a sullen hoarse murmur and nameless fear, a sound like the tread of a hurrying host, a roar like the storm as the wild waters near, like the dash of the sea on a crag-bordered coast. A wave like a mountain sweeps swift through the vale, ten thousand wrecked homes tossing dark in its spray. Wild cries of death, anguish echo mocks with her wail, and the fiend of the flood now has claimed his prey. India, profiting by long and sad experience, has provided, as far as may be possible, against the contingencies of drought and famine by the establishment of a magnificent system of storage reservoirs to furnish water for irrigating when rain is wanting. Some of these tanks are fine specimens of engineering, and so far as records go, no disaster has ever attended their establishment. But to be ready and efficient for purposes of irrigation, the water must be above the level of the surrounding country, Hence, the only practicable plan has been to dam up the courses of streams and ravines in the hills. As nearly all Bengal is comparatively low and level, this method is not applicable there. Hence, the terrible famines consequent in a comparatively small decrease of the average rain supply. But in the Deccan, in the Madras Presidency, and in Ceylon, the reservoir system has been carried to an extent astounding to the white man, who depends with tolerable certainty upon the rain, and who is accustomed to consider other races as universally indolent and improvident. In 14 districts of the Madras Presidency are nearly 53,000 irrigation reservoirs, four-fifths of which are in regular operation. Their size may be estimated by the fact that the retaining dikes average half a mile in length. 
one ancient reservoir, now broken, has a dam 30 miles long, shutting in an artificial lake of 80 square miles. The Vernum tank covers 53 square miles, has a dam 12 miles long, and produces $55,000 per year. In Ceylon may be seen a gigantic dam of cemented stone 15 miles long, 100 feet wide at its base, and 40 feet wide at the top. The same plan is of late years being extensively operated in our western tracts for the reclaiming of extensive tracts otherwise not cultivatable. With these exceptions, no great use of the reservoir system has been made in this country. Every sawmill, gristmill, or factory in our land usually has its dam in an adjacent stream to ensure a fair supply of water, but none of these can be properly considered general precautions against drought. The only prominent public works of the sort are the Croton storage reservoirs by which New York is supplied with water. There are 18 reservoirs with a total capacity of 14,000 millions of gallons. China has a great canal irrigation system which is, perhaps, safer in some respects than the Hindu system, but which cannot command as large an increase in supply in time of drought, the water being drawn from the rivers, and thus having comparatively little fall. But the canals so thoroughly intersect the whole country as to serve as public highways, and in many sections there are no other roads. Doubtless the methods of construction in India have been learned by long experience. Certain it is that for many years at least, no serious trouble has ever arisen from defective retaining dikes. The public welfare is so intimately connected with these pools that they are carefully inspected and repaired. The destruction of the system might at any time precipitate a terrible famine. Not having a similar condition of things to contend with, the average American is not concerned about the few dams scattered about the land. Not one in a score of which would cause any serious loss if it were to break, and even were such death traps scattered over every county, it is doubtful if a race who would crouch behind a Mississippi levee and refuse flight till the last moment could ever be brought to a proper realization of the danger or their culpable negligence. The American is in a hurry, and so if speed be obtained, trains may wreck, vessels collide, or boilers burst, and the coroner's jury will obligingly render a verdict of nobody to blame. Since he also wants things at the bottom market price, he encourages the production of countless unsafe buildings, dams, and similar structures, merely because they are cheap. The most terrible lesson ever given to cheap dam builders in the history of our country is one which, with the reader's indulgence, we shall endeavor to narrate. In southwest central Pennsylvania, among the foothills of the Alleghenies, lies the peaceful and picturesque valley of the Little Conemaugh, here, in 1889, within a stretch of a dozen miles, lay five industrious and thriving towns, South Fork, Mineral Point, Conemaugh, Woodvale, and Johnstone. The last of these, embracing as it did, Cambria and Conemaugh Borough, was a city of 30,000 people. The population of South Fork was 2,000, Mineral Point had 800, Conemaugh and Woodvale about 2,500 each. The total population of the valley within the distance named could not have been far from 38,000. Johnstown was the center of interest as a population. Thither came on May 30th, Decoration Day, people from Altoona, Hollidaysburg, Somerset, Latrobe, Ebensburg, and Wilmore, and from the four other towns already mentioned. There was a great concourse, a long and impressive procession of soldiers and secret orders, with bands of music, flags, regalia, banners, bunting, and devices. 
With solemn pomp, the cemetery was visited, and flowers were strewn on the graves of the patriotic dead. This sad but pleasing duty ended, the procession turned again toward the city, and entering the opera house, listened to an eloquent oration. It was a day of more than ordinary interest and elation for Johnstone. The city stood happily and unsuspecting on the very brink of an awful doom. During the day the sky had been overcast, and there were occasional light showers. At nightfall the clouds lowered more heavily, and seemed to descend near to the earth. At nine o'clock there was a gentle rain. At eleven a tremendous downpour, which continued with little interruption during the remainder of the night. It seemed as if the windows of heaven had been opened. The site of Johnstown is at the junction of Stony Creek with the Little Conemaw. Before eight o'clock in the morning of the 31st of May, both streams were bank full. As the day advanced, the lower parts of the town were inundated. By eleven o'clock there was a depth of five feet at the corner of Main and Market Streets, and at the Cambria Iron Company's store. Still higher, the waters rose. In the houses most exposed, carpets were removed from the floors, and pianos and organs were lifted on chairs and tables. Soon, the two angry streams were mingling their waters in the business center of the town. Both streams had been as high before, but never both at the same time. Some thought the Cambria Iron Company, which had narrowed the channel below the stone bridge, was responsible, and should be required to widen it again, and so make a free exit for the waters. By two o'clock the water was two to ten feet deep, all over the city proper, and the people had retired to their houses. There was inconvenience and cessation of business, but no one apprehended serious danger. They surveyed the providence of God without fear, little thinking of the destruction that, swifter than the avalanche, would presently come through the heedlessness or greed of man. Twelve miles up the river, eastward, and at an elevation of 450 feet above the city, lay Conemaw Lake. This was an artificial reservoir, covering 400 or perhaps 450 acres of land, and having an average depth of 35 feet. Across the south fork of the Conemaw, about two miles above its junction with the main stream, had been built a dam, 62 feet high in the center and 850 feet long. The valley, narrow at the dam, widened above to an extensive basin. Proposed in 1836 and authorized three years later, this reservoir had been finally constructed in 1852 as a feeder to the Pennsylvania Canal 14 miles below. A culvert at the bottom of the dam contained fine iron discharge pipes, each two feet in diameter, which could be opened at low water, thus sending the contents of the reservoir to the canal at Johnstown. In 1857, the Pennsylvania Railroad Company, having bought the canal, abandoned it, and the reservoir was thenceforth disused. In July 1862, the culvert beneath it gave way, owing to some imperfection of the foundation. The depth of the water in the reservoir was, at that time, not greater than 40 feet, hardly more than half its actual capacity. The breach widened to a chasm, and the water of the reservoir was discharged with the exception of about 8 feet at the bottom. But so slow was the process, owing to the substantial character of the dam and the resistance it presented, that little harm resulted. From 1862 to 1880, the reservoir was empty, and the property containing something more than 500 acres was a waste. In 1875, it was bought by Congressman John Riley, and was by him, four years later, transferred to the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club. This was an association of three gentlemen, suggested and organized by Colonel B.F. Ruff, a successful railroad and tunnel contractor. All these parties had ceased from membership in the club prior to the great disaster. 
The original dam, constructed with care and solidity, had involved an expenditure of $240,000. It was built in regular layers and solidly rammed, and when finished was higher in the middle than at the ends, having a spillway cut through the rock in the side of the hill. The cost of reconstruction was no more than $17,000. No engineer, good or bad, had charge of the work. The material used was, for the most part, not more substantial than shale and earth and straw. The pipes at the bottom were permanently closed, and as the dam advanced, the water was discharged through a broad flume over the top. It was at first intended to raise the new dam to a height of no more than 40 feet, but it was presently discovered that to cut down the spillway through rock would cost more than to construct the dam to the original elevation. This was accordingly done, though not perfectly, as the dam was two or three feet lower than the old one and had, besides, a sag in the middle, a fatal mistake if once the water should begin to flow over the crest. Another mistake was the obstruction of the spillway with an iron grating placed to retain the fish without taking the precaution at the same time to enlarge the passage. This would have been expensive, and here, as in the construction of the dam, it is apparent that economy was consulted. The sum of the mistakes made in the summer of 1880, and which culminated in the disaster of 1889, were, according to the report of a corps of engineers, who made a careful survey, the lowering of the crest, the dishing or central sag of the crest, the closing of the bottom culvert, and the obstruction of the spillway. The people of the towns below had often discussed the possible rupture of the dam, but they scarcely feared it. Had it not been built by men who understood their business, and might not these be trusted, as men trust their lives to the doctor and their souls to the priest? Had it not resisted the flood of June 1887, the highest ever known, and why then should it yield to any other? It is certain that in the towns below some were not thinking of the reservoir at all, while, in case it should give way, few had formed the remotest conception of the possible disaster. On the very day of the awful calamity, when the streets and sidewalks of Johnstown were already under water, a leading citizen, to the question, how much higher do you think the water will rise if the reservoir should burst, answered quietly, about two feet, and we have not heard that any ventured to correct the estimate. Unsuspecting souls were they, and yet wholly like other men. Those long resident by the volcano had ceased to fear its fires. Familiarity, even with danger, breeds contempt. The evil which still delays, we fondly believe, will never come. And as to the consequences, if those who build dams know so little, why should simple townsmen be expected to know more? Had they gauged that reservoir, and did they know that up there in the mountains were 640 millions of cubic feet of water, enough to make a veritable Niagara, for more than half an hour, ready to rush down upon them? Had they calculated the awful energy of twenty millions of tons of water falling 450 feet in a progress of a dozen miles, and this progress down a pent-up valley, in some places not more than 300 feet in width? Had they considered that the flow of a mountain of water 60 feet high at starting must be far more rapid on the top than at the bottom? That the base, entangled among obstructions and overspreading them, would furnish to the water above an inclined plane, smooth as glass, along which it would shoot with the speed of an arrow, to fall over the edge of the retarded water beneath, and furnish in its turn a ready passage for the water above and behind? That in consequence of this law, the flood would come not by a gradual rise, giving time for escape, but like a rolling mountain, to smite with the impact of a falling asteroid, 
and crush in an instant everything in its way. Had they reflected that such a body of water would outrun the swiftest Paul Revere, who might mount steed to fly with the warning to the towns below? That to the doomed the first announcement of danger would be the stroke of the destroyer? That to the living there would be absolutely no more time for flight than to the sinner of preparation for judgment after Gabriel shall have blown his trumpet? It is safe to say that few, if any, had even remotely conceived the possibilities in the case. Men learn by experience, and even from experience they fail to learn. For the lesson of today is forgotten tomorrow, and human heedlessness is perpetual. The crest of the dam stood four or five feet above the spillway. Towards noon of the 31st, persons on the watch saw the water of the reservoir rising at the rate of a foot an hour. Meanwhile, a rumor had spread that the dam was leaking, and this attracted other observers. Some declared that jets of water were leaping from the lower side to a distance of 30 feet. Somewhere about half-past two o'clock, water began to run over the top. The structure was then evidently doomed, for, though rip-wrapped with stone on both sides, no rampart of earth could long withstand the abrasion of a torrent running over its crest and down its lower face. A South Fork pastor reached the spot at ten minutes before three. A foot of water was then running over the dam. A few minutes later, a break was made, large enough to admit the passage of a train of cars. Then presently the whole thing dissolved almost instantly, like a phantom. A breach was made 429 feet wide, clean down to the bottom, and with the noise of seven thunders and a tread that shook the hills like a young earthquake, out rushed a mountain of water, tree-top high. At such a sight the odd spectator could only gasp, God have mercy on the people in the vale below. Rushing onward a mile in three minutes, or as some have claimed, twice or thrice as fast, in an instant down went a mill, two houses, and some barns. Up went an iron bridge, tossed like a thing of straw, and a moment later the flood was at South Fork. Two trains, a passenger and a freight, detained by a washout further up the road, were standing at the station. Warned by the awful roar, the passenger train sprang out just in time to save the lives of the people on board. The engineer of the freight, seeing it impossible to move with his heavy train, unhitched the locomotive, opened the throttle valve, and with the firemen flew for life. The seething mountain leaped on the train and dragged it away, regardless of two brakemen who surrendered their lives. The village of South Fork, standing in the angle above the junction of the two streams, and on high ground, was comparatively unharmed, though two lives and considerable property were destroyed. On rushed the river down a valley, having from the lake to Johnstown an average grade of more than thirty feet in a mile. A mile and a quarter below South Fork, the river strikes at right angles a projecting cliff. The baffled stream makes a detour of two miles and returns almost to itself, having accomplished an absolute advance of no more than seventy-five feet. A railroad cut no longer than this quits the river above, then regains and crosses it by a viaduct below. The railroad bend at the upper end of the cut is twenty feet above the stream, while at the lower end it is seventy. Here the torrent divided, part of it, twenty feet deep and forty feet above the river bed, flowing through the cut, the other part following the channel around. When this latter portion, returning, struck the cliff at the lower end of the cut, the water rose to the enormous height of one hundred and twenty-five feet. From this point the monster, towering to heaven, and like a wild beast dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly, and ravening for prey, sprang upon Mineral Point, a little more than a mile below.
the town was instantly wiped out, forty houses being swept away and sixteen persons drowned. The rest doubtless were saved by clinging to the wreck, or warned by the ominous roar they had fled to the neighboring hills. The Methodist church, lifted from its foundation and tossing in the torrent, solemnly and for the last time tolled its bell, as if recognizing the end of its days and usefulness, and continued to toll until its burial was accomplished beneath the waters. Two miles and a half below Mineral Point, the flood encountered another bend of the river, with a cut and viaduct in all respects similar to that which had been described. Here again was enacted the grand and terrific scene which took place above. Then from this augmented height, the torrent swept down upon East Conemaugh and Franklin, a mile below. These villages, standing on the opposite side of the river, constituted the first of that series of boroughs known by the name of Johnstown. An engineer, backing up the road and pulling at the nose of his locomotive a train of freight cars, had proceeded a third of a mile above Conma. Here the roar of the coming flood broke upon his ears, and looking up the river he saw the descending avalanche. Instantly reversing his engine and drawing the throttle, his whistle, all the while shrieking a wild alarm, he pushed at utmost speed the obstructing cars back to the yard of the Pennsylvania Road. Then, leaping from his engine and leaving his whistle still to sound its warning, he ran to his house nearby and with his family escaped to the hill just as the rolling torrent dashed its billows at his feet. Three passenger trains and one freight had been standing on the side tracks some hours, detained by the washout already mentioned. The passengers were reading, writing, conversing, worrying, walking up and down the tracks in the rain, or watching the driftwood and the constantly rising river, but conscious of no danger. Something was said about a reservoir somewhere up the road, which might burst and come down upon them, but they gave the matter no second thought. Twice was one of the trains compelled to move, as the water undermined the track and caused it to fall into the river. Once they were startled by the crash of a bridge, which yielded to the rushing waters and was swept away. It was near the hour of four in the afternoon, and they were still wearily waiting. Suddenly they were startled by the long, shrill shriek, close to their ears, of Engineer Hess's whistle, and looking out of the windows up the river they saw an enormous mass of wreckage, roots, trees, and driftwood, borne aloft on the back of the torrent and rushing toward them. With one impulse, the most of the passengers leaped from the trains and fled for their lives. Those in the first train had to run round or creep under the second in order to reach the town and thence the hill. Between the trains and the town there was a ditch ten feet wide and five and a half feet deep, filled with water. Into this many plunged, nine women and girls together. A gentleman who had leaped across tarried a moment to give a helping hand and all were rescued, save one, an aged woman. She was apparently dazed, for refusing the proffered hand, she said, I will go this way, and walked toward the maddened waters and was lost. The rest fled amain to the rising ground nearby, with the raging torrent not ten feet behind them. Gaining the hill, they turned to behold a grand and awful scene. The crashing, tumbling buildings lifted from their foundations and hurled against each other. The shrieks and cries and screams of agonizing, despairing, dying men and women. And all Coma going down in the fierce river. The roundhouse sprang from its seat like a toy tossed from a giant's hand, and more than thirty great locomotives were rolled along like so many pebbles. All the trains were carried away. In some of the cars the passengers could yet be seen, while on the top of one car, loosened from the rest, were two men struggling desperately to keep their hold as it rolled from side to side. The whole four trains drifted down about five hundred feet, when they were stopped in a singular manner. 
some inexplicable movement of the water lifted the head of one train and threw it across that of the other engines from the roundhouse were rolled down and piled against these a mass of trees and drift were added and the whole four trains with the exception of two or three cars were arrested and anchored in the midst of the flood but though the whistle was a warning and the hills were a refuge to the people of east Comaw, the lives of twenty-four were lost while of the passengers on the trains twenty-six are known to have perished one family was carried down in their house which held together till it drifted against the steep hillside some distance below where it was arrested long enough for them to make their escape two sisters clinging to driftwood were being swept past the woolen mill in woodvale when a rope was thrown to them and they were saved one man was carried on a drifting log clear through johnstown and over into kernville to find deliverance at the end of a wild three miles ride another overtaken at the fairgrounds climbed on the ticket shed and thence upon a telephone pole this being quickly broken down by the impact of some solid body he mounted a passing log and dashed ahead all the way to the stone bridge a distance of more than two miles here he took hold of some wreckage and by the backwater was carried to main street near the presbyterian church whence he worked his way to final safety a quarter of a mile below east Comaw was the town of woodvale the story of its calamity has few details since all its five thousand inhabitants were either drowned or engaged in a mad struggle for their lives every one of its eight hundred houses was lifted in a minute not one remained nothing but parts of the walls of the large woolen and flour mills to the hills forty or sixty rods distant not many succeeded in escaping relatively but few attempted it for when the whistles sounded the alarm the hills were too distant and the flood was too near such as fled were overtaken by the raging waters and to make the destruction doubly sure a freight train was standing between them and the hill and this at the supreme moment began to move thus many perished when there was but a step between them and deliverance the houses were mostly frames and the people were commonly swept away with their shattered dwellings we know there were thousands of wonderful escapes the recital of which would fill a bulky volume but more than one-third of the total population were quickly counted with the dead laden with corpses and debris gathered from five towns with cars and trees and all the nameless accumulation from a valley twelve miles long the torrent now swept down on conemaugh borough this in turn was quickly swept away though more of the inhabitants succeeded in escaping to the hills at the lower end of the borough were the gautier mills a part of the great cambria iron company's plant these occupied perhaps ten or twelve acres of ground when the flood struck them with their hundreds of fierce fires there were thunderous explosions that shook the hills and the whole seemed to rise up at once and slide forward on the slanting flood one or two experiences from this part of the town must suffice for hundreds more one lady drifted far down across the seventh ward and lay all night among the wreckage within easy reach of seven dead persons while the luxuriant hair of a dead woman drifted frequently across her face half buried beneath the water a wealthy german lady a prominent member of the lutheran church said my son henry and his wife my son charles and my son-in-law were all drowned my pastor and his wife and four nice little children were lost there is not one brick of our good big church left on top of another and here is the key which alone remains i think my heart must break from overmuch sorrow a few days later she sank into the grave end of chapter sixteen thank you for listening to people's
guide to the Cthulhu mythos. This episode was brought to you by patrons and listeners like you. You can go to the show notes and find out how to support the show, how to buy t-shirts, stickers, and all that kind of fun stuff. If you want to get on the show, if you've got something you want to let the world know about that's Cthulhu, mythos-related, or tangential, or tentacle, I don't know, uh, contact Dave Heath. David Heath will be the person to talk to if you've got, you know, uh, audio that you want to send in. I'm the person to talk to if you've got video, if you've got uh, images, if you've got stickers, not stickers, um, if you have illustrations, I've got stickers. Contact me. Thank you so much. PGTTCM.com.